Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen. I am obviously not Carmen LeBurge. I am Peter Kapsner filling you in. You are definitely for not the, Carmen. I am definitely not on so many levels, Carmen LeBurge here, but glad to be with you nonetheless. Paul Perot here in studio. You, as listeners from around the Midwest, around the country, streaming live, uh, listening through apps. It's kind of fun, Paul Perot, when I'm overseas to just call up the app on my phone, and it's almost like I'm in studio. I can listen right through that. And uh, you look at 10 years ago. This kind of thing was barely even possible, mm-hmm. and yet now it really can it's bring every day. together. Yeah, it brings together a sense of community from wherever we're listening this morning. Hard to believe it's the thirty first of January already. I I don't oh, I know. I thought it was the three hundred and thirty first. Well, of it January. feels that way. Yeah. You know, it really does. I don't know if as we get older in life like this, that time somehow even speeds up a little bit more. But it mm-hmm. feels like. But January always seems long. Yeah, it does. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Well, looking forward to our morning. I know we've got a big first hour ahead with Matt Hawkins, who joins us regularly on the Friday morning, as well as my good friend Dr. Gary Stratton. And we're going to be talking about a number of issues that can vary in complexity and uh, can be a little difficult to wade through. And so, so I was thinking about that as we start the morning, uh, that uh, sometimes I, I don't know if you, if you're, as you're listening, can get caught up worrying about how much I understand about the different issues of our faith. And I certainly want to understand the different issues of our faith, and I think it's a, a, a wildly interesting pursuit. It's the work that I do day in and day out at university as well, but I also don't want to get confused or paralyzed by the issues of our faith. And so that wonderful Proverbs passage that I think maybe many of us know that says that really the heart of our faith uh, starts with trust. It doesn't start with understanding. And so those words from Proverbs, that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And it's one of the hardest things I think to do is to let go of all of the things that we desperately want to know in their fullness. But we really only do see through a glass darkly on this side. We live in the shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis might say. And so as Matt Hawkins and I, in just a minute, talk about things like abortion, which is a very difficult topic, or we talk about some transgenderism ideas too, or Gary Stratton and I talk about understanding the scriptures, all really important topics. But my encouragement for you as you're listening, Paul Perot in studio, me as well, that we remember that the heartbeat of our faith begins with trust and begins with surrender. So good morning, everybody, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Time to welcome Matt Hawkins into the show here on Mornings with Carmen. He's part of our Friday morning contribution team, and he does theology in the public sphere, in the public square. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Peter. Great to be with you again. Uh, yes, always great to be with you as well. Why don't you just give me a sense again of what it means to do theology in the public sphere? How is this maybe different than private theology or academic theology? <laughs> what is it that you sort of do day in and day out with the work? Yeah, sure. Um, so public theology is just kind of a shorthand 
shorthand for the witness of the church in the public square. And it, inclu- it includes all of those kinds of uh, narrow, particular ethical issues that you deal with uh, regularly. Uh, but my particular focus is on uh, trying to help equip churches as a local institution. Uh, once you come to a conclusion, say, on abortion or immigration or uh, any of the number of issues that we might uh, wrestle with ethically from a Christian perspective, how then, how best uh, might a church engage the culture around it, engage the civic sphere uh, in a way that um, is harmonizes with uh, what we know about the New Testament church uh, from Scripture? What protects it as an identity? What, uh, what uh, would protect a church as an institution from becoming partisan, uh, but also uh, protect a church uh, and, and prompt us to not remain quiet? Uh, that's my general critique and uh, general feeling after working for uh, pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention and then talking with pastors for years is that those are the, tend to be the two different models we have. We either have a church that's vocal and, and but feels partisan when it engages the civic space, or we have churches that just don't talk about politics. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think both both are, are wanting and, and lack. Uh, but the challenge, of course, as you know, is we don't have uh, inspired scripture in our book uh, that deal with a church as an institution in a place where there is local representative government uh, or where there's a democratic uh, representative democracy. And so uh, there's a challenge uh, scripturally when we want to start start with scripture and then move outward uh, into the civic space. Uh, But that's generally my project. Yeah, I think there's a lot there we can mine into. And I know you and I have a couple topics that we can get into this morning, but let's stay on this for just a minute. You referenced both the idea that scripture doesn't necessarily have direct uh, instruction for so many of the different things in our world today. We can certainly derive what the kingdom of God is all about from the scriptures and then make application to the public square. But I think more importantly, Matthew, the idea that the public square is not static is something that I would love for you to comment a bit on. And, And the idea that it's always shifting. There's new things that come up. There are new challenges that the churches face. And even when I hear the word relevant so often for the church, it tends to be reduced down to the idea that the church needs to look and sound and act like the culture so people feel comfortable. But what I would suggest is that relevance, if a church or an organization or a ministry is going to stay relevant, they need to understand the shifting sort of geography of the public square, as it were, and that the conversations are very different. So I I was talking to you off air and thinking about my own syllabus for the ethics and, and theology class that I teach, and how much that's changed over the past even five to seven years uh-huh. on topics that I've never had to deal yeah. with before. So kind of free association, Matthew, if, if I was to say you're teaching an <laughs> ethics class in 2010, and now you're teaching a public theology uh-huh. or ethics class in 2020, what would be in your syllabus today that you would have to address that we simply didn't have to address in 2010? Wow. Uh, well, certainly I, what's on the headlines this week, um, uh, transgender uh, medicine uh, or gender transitioning of minors, of, of children, uh, people who uh, have not uh, fully developed, uh, their bodies are still developing, um, uh, both in, in context of their, their human sexuality and reproductive organs, but also as far as their uh, emotional and mental capacity. And we understand that uh, especially brains are not developing in, <laughs> until like we're in college. They're not finished developing until we're in college. And uh, right now, we're you know we're talking about the states that are considering legislation whether to ban um, treatment of minors. And when we call treatment, uh, using that term loosely, uh, it is uh, basically a, a, a puberty blocking agents uh, that would stop uh, the normal. 
normal um, uh, progression of the human body from developing uh, biologically. Uh, and I, while this, that stuff was on the horizon in 2010, that was more the transgender conversation around then was more about adults um, and transitioning. I think it's rapidly shifted uh, downward in age ranges. <clears throat> Yeah, and that certainly was manifested even as recently as my class yesterday morning on sexuality. When I talked to the students, they did some interviews mm-hmm. with people just say sort of their initial assignment in both sexuality and ethics is to go out into the street, as it were, uh, libraries, uh, coffee shops, the mall, just the public squares we talk about, and, and ask the people, Christians and non-Christians, older, younger, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, and just ask them, what are the issues of the day that you'd like to talk about? And, and what you just described was certainly one of the issues that came up that we simply didn't have to think about in 2010, and that is the ongoing yeah. dysphoria and then transition that happens for people in, in the sense of their, their gender. And my young people don't have any idea what to do with it, but the thing is, Matt, right, it's not just the next generation stuff. There's tons of families that don't have any idea what to do, and we don't have a passage from Ephesians that says, thou shalt not transgender and, or, or, or shift your gender. And so we have to think about these things much more critically sometimes and, and with a bit of thought. Uh, I, on that particular topic, I'd recommend a book by my friend Andrew Walker, God and the Transgender Debate. It's uh, it's written for a popular audience. Uh, it's respectful um, and it uh, reflects the dignity of, of of human beings. And I think that that's part of what we need to remember about the transgender debate, in particular among others, is that we are talking about fellow human beings and our neighbors. And uh, there's clearly something that's uh, there are folks who are in distress and seeking answers. Uh, and so however we think about the laws, we need to keep in mind uh, their fellow human beings who are really struggling and uh, are being sold uh, promises uh, from people that uh, from processes that we know won't ultimately deliver um, satisfaction. Yeah. And uh Matthew, on that point, too, and some other of the different topics, and we're talking this morning with Matthew Hawkins about some of the different topics of the day as the public square has so shifted over these last 10 years, and the churches need to sort of deal relevantly within those spheres. And Matt, I was celebrating with my daughter her 18th birthday last Sunday, and she said I wanted uh, chili was her choice for her birthday dinner. She loves a a really good pot of chili, and my wife Hallie makes a great pot of chili. And and so uh, my daughter's friend, her name is Lily, came walking in, and, and we had invited her for dinner, and we said, hey, come and stay have some chili and she she wasn't aggressive she wasn't mean she wasn't obnoxious about any of it and she said you know actually i I won't eat chili because it has meat in it and and matt this is another one of the things right when you actually talk with people in the next generation that they're really concerned about eating habits they're very concerned about even eating habits and the impact in the environment and i I try to sort of step back and see the world through her lens and say so what is she caring about and why and it led to a fascinating 20-minute conversation about why she's perceiving these sorts of things i mean is this what you find too in terms of some of these topics whether it's climate or transhumanism or any of these ideas yeah, I, I think so. I think um, we're often confronted with a lot of these kinds of issues, and really people don't uh, often know where to start, uh, often know, know where to begin. Um, but uh, like your daughter indicated, like, there's something that probably pricked her conscience about uh, about what uh, what was going on in meat processing and, and related to climate and uh, related to uh, treatment of animals. And uh, I don't know what the particulars were, but uh, they do notice things around them. And I think, I think that's uh, something to be whatever we uh, might agree or disagree on particular issues, I think we ought to applaud 
uh, young people and others who are paying attention to the world around them and who are engaging their consciences. I think that's a that's a biblically affirmable uh, position, and it's something on which we can develop uh, and, and encourage one another to uh, mine the scriptures for uh, how we are to think about these things. One of the most fascinating conversations uh, and memorable conversations I had in Washington was with an atheist lobbyist, and mm. we talked about transgenderism. And what we, what I realized is to, for that worldview uh, to meet my worldview, I had to back up and ex- basically explain the broader biblical narrative um, and explain why in the context of a biblical view, um, what our positions are in human sexuality. Um, and what she didn't know was I was essentially explaining the gospel to her. Um, mm. And uh, you kind of have to do that, uh, whether she knew it or not. Um, and at the end of the conversation, she didn't, even though she wasn't going to d- agree with me, she recognized that our position um, and our thinking through this was not out of animus for uh, people who are, you know, struggling with gender dysphoria or whatever, um, but that we it actually is a you know a rational, uh, credible view given our reliance on scripture. That's great stuff, Matthew. I know as overseas here the last couple of weeks, and I talked to the pastor there that said, as we prepare for life in a post-Christian world, uh, especially in Western society, he said one of the things we have to be able to do besides out-loving and out-living and even out-dying and out-praying the society is we need to be able to out-think the society, and, and not in a dogmatic way, but to really engage right. through the lens of the gospel these issues that you describe. So we'll take a short break here. When we come back, let's get into some of the headlines and apply some of what you and I have been talking about in this first segment. We'll talk a little bit about some news out of Kentucky and some legislation passed around late-term abortion. You know, Matt Hawkins, that just shows how other-centered Paul Perot and I here on the morning show, (laughs) Mornings with Carmen, because we know how deeply you have this affection for the Washington Nationals. I'm guessing you'd like to say and remind our listeners one more time that they are the world champions of baseball, right? They are the standing world champions of baseball, and uh, 12 days, a mere 12 days, thanks to Paul Ferro pointed out, that uh, that we start back at tr- spring training. So there's always hope on the horizon. <laughs> I love it. Well, <laughs> we've got a couple issues that we can get into here today, and we'll talk about some of the late-term abortion bans coming out of Kentucky. But uh, there is obviously Groundhog Day coming up, and I find it kind of interesting. It does relate to some of the topics that you and I would talk about on a day like today yeah. in terms of what's in the public square. And this one relates to transhumanism, except it apparently is extending to rodents on some level. So PETA is issuing a plea to use a robot on Groundhog Day instead of the real thing. And so we're, we're, talk, we're talking about enhancing the rodents of our society because they're going to be a bit more reliable, oh it sounds like, related to predicting the weather. So th- is this where we're headed, Matt? I mean, are we moving from sort of va- round vacuum cleaners that do our floors all day long to, uh, to rodents to humans, right? I tell you what, Punxsutawney Phil had better get his union engaged because this is going to do him out of a job, and you, you just see where this is going, man. It is. I mean, this, that's a slippery slope of roboticism, right? I mean, if you start with that's the groundhog, right. who knows where it goes from there? So They're, hey. they're going to steal our jobs, man. Punxsutawney Phil among them. I love it. Well, there was actually some really, I think, important and interesting news for our country coming out of Kentucky having to do with a, a unanimously voted upon ban on late-term abortion. So, Matt, just walk us through a little bit what's happening there but also, most importantly, where the, some of the implications might be in this conversation legislatively. Sure. Uh, so the basic gist of the bill is that in the context of abortion, especially late-term abortion, uh, sometimes it's a scenario and it's a possibility, uh, I have talked to survivors, uh, that a, a, a baby, an infant, can survive an abortion. 
and the Born Alive bills that uh, are floating around the states and in this particular situation in Kentucky that passed the Kentucky State Senate would basically require uh, abortion physicians to provide life-saving medical care for babies who are, guess what? born alive yeah and that's the gist of it that's the that's what we're asking for um otherwise what are you to do with a baby that is uh was intended uh who who was uh, slated for abortion and the botched abortion uh failed uh you we ought to have some requirement for keeping that baby alive and uh resuscitating it and uh you know giving medical care um, that's what this bill is about. As you said, it, it passed uh, the state Senate uh, unanimously. Uh, what's a little bit interesting to look at is it looks like it was the vote was 32 to zero, um, but they have uh, there are more seats there. Uh, so it looks like there were some no votes. Uh, the GOP has 29 seats and the Dems have nine seats. So it looks like the vote was um, minorly bipartisan uh, with a lot of folks abstaining. Um, but it's interesting to see this kind of vote in an election year, frankly. There are 19 seats in the Senate, in that state Senate for re-election this year. Um, and then, uh, as you know, you have a new, new-ish new governor, uh, a Democrat governor, Andy Bashir. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to watch where the Kentucky bill goes, given those state uh, dynamics and given an election year. Yeah, boy, it's such an interesting conversation, too. And you referenced the idea of the intention of the abortion and having to not work out. I was reading some articles from Bill Maher, who, of course, uh, hosts an evening show, and, and he would uh, be very much on the side of pro-choice. But it turns out that he right. actually, I don't know that he survived the abortion attempt, but uh, his mother actually did plan on having an abortion and didn't go through with it. And so it's interesting to wow. watch him, yeah. the dissonance of it. And he talks about it. He, he, he talks about being able to sympathize with the pro-life movement. But he made the statement, and I would love your take on this, Matt, because if you're going to somehow advocate for abortion, which you know you and I are both trained in the arts of trying to understand at least the other side if we don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. And in the other sure. side, he would say, that while in the womb, he was the potential for life. He wasn't yet life itself, but it even so troubled him the idea that his mother might cut off the potential and father might cut off the potential of him being alive. But listening to him and the dissonance of it, you could tell mm. it wasn't a viable position at the end of the day. And the idea that somehow yeah. just outside the womb, it becomes life and it's not prior to that, that, that is a, a position that's going to be more and more difficult to hold, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree entirely. And that's where a lot of folks are. And uh, frankly, the history of law on the issue hasn't really helped. Uh, that's that's the that's the question is, when does life begin? When does personhood uh, become associated with a, with an unborn baby and fetal development? We would argue uh, the pro-life position that the only objective point during uh, during a during fetal development is at conception at fertilization of the sperm and the egg where you have scientifically we understand that there is the DNA of a new distinct person uh, a, a person a biological uh, entity that is not his not his or her mother and not his or her father uh, it's unique and it's uh, and every other point along the development window frankly is uh, subjective I mean you could point you could pick any other place and people are going to disagree the only objective point uh, at which new life begins is at fertilization that would be my uh, argument um, and uh, it's interesting to see, at least at least Bill Maher's uh, willing to uh, discuss it um, in public and uh, let the tension play out so we can uh, you know our, my 
friend Scott Klusendorf, uh, his his position when he's training pro life students is that you're you're not uh, trying to always win the argument and win another person over in your immediate conversation. Uh, you're trying to put a pebble in their shoe uh, where they realize that their their positions and how they're thinking through it uh, is really uh, incompatible uh, and incongruent. It's Matt Hawkins joining us here on Friday morning on Mornings with Carmen, as you often do. And Matt, before we run, going back to the Groundhog Day conversation for just a second, I vote that you and I each buy our own groundhog. I don't really know where to buy one, but let's do it. And then let's compare the results from a winter standpoint about how you do versus mine. That's great. I I think there are a few down the street for me. I'll I'll go rustle them up. (laughs) That's great. Thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of the weekend, Matt. Thanks, Peter. Have a great weekend. We'll take a short break here for some bottom of the hour news. And when we come back for the second half of this hour, our good friend, Dr. Gary Stratton will join us. And Gary and I are going to talk about the importance of engaging with some of the ancient Christian writings as we sort of sort through these issues of our faith. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It's about 30 minutes past, past the top of the hour. And Paul, as we anticipate the next conversation with Gary Stratton here, where we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of reading some of the ancient Christian theologians, some of the ancient Christian pastors, people who have been involved in the church, as we think about the church in the public square over all of these generations and staying faithful, I'd be curious, do you have any sort of go-to ancient theologian? I don't know what the criteria for ancient is. Today it could be like the 1950s, but I'm thinking like 3rd, 4th, 5th century kind of thing. Oh, well, if you're going that far, I mean, I did a long time ago read some of Augustine's writings, The City of God, and parts of Confession. I haven't read all of it, but uh, yeah, I mean, those things. If you want to really get old, it's it's not one specific writer, but the Didache, which is one of the early creedal writings about you know, the beliefs of the church. Absolutely. So. It's funny that you referenced that because you and I didn't rehearse this, but as Gary and I talk about that in a minute, that was going to be my go-to document as well. And there's some really interesting practices about which we can read in the Didache in terms of early church baptism and confirmation and communion and the way the church practices itself. So we'll stay with us here. If you're listening to Mornings with Carmen, we're going to have a conversation that extends into this further with Gary Stratton about some of the ancient Christian writers and how they can help us understand why we think, what we think about God, and what maybe we've lost in all of these generations that might be helpful for recapturing in some of the difficult issues of the day. I work with troubled kids, teens who have lost their way, and their parents often ask me what to do when their teen is arrested. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Well, I believe in allowing a child to own the consequences of his behavior. I believe it's best to not bail a kid out right away, especially if he truly deserved being arrested in the first place. It's a tough decision, but letting your child sit for a day or two in jail may be the lesson that's needed. And correction at a younger age is far better than imprisonment for a lifetime as an adult. Think about it. Jail time might just speak to your son or daughter louder than you ever could. It'll bring a sobering sense of reality to the choices and consequences. Parenting teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Paul Perot has chosen dozens of introductory songs here for the different guests in the morning I show. All these years. I know he, Gary picked this one, and Gary, I got to tell you, it remains at the top of the charts in terms of my favorite walk-up <laughs> songs here. So welcome to the show. Great to hear your voice again. 
Oh, great to hear you, Peter. So one of the things I want to talk about this morning as you and I and Paul were preparing for the show off air both this morning and, and last night was the idea of the importance of reading ancient Christian writings. And there, there's been a lot of thinking. There's been a lot of processing. There's been a lot of engagement uh, with the church in our culture over so many different years. We're hardly new in all of that. And our first guest, Matt Hawkins, and I were talking about the changing public square and how it does really change throughout all these generations in terms of how the church has to engage and, and even relevance being the idea. Uh, of engaging in the things that matter today, not necessarily looking like the culture or sounding like the culture, but being able to understand and discern where the culture is. But part of equipping ourselves to do that work in the culture is reading backwards a bit and and understanding some great minds, both men and women, that have written about our faith that I think it's uh, pretty lost. And so so we get started here this morning, Gary, and and, and more of a coffee conversation between you and me, less of an interview of me. Of you, I'd be curious uh, with an opening question. Do you have sort of any ancient Christian writers, any any theologians that are sort of your go-to people or people who have had a really big impact on the way you think about God's kingdom? Well, I mean, the really ancient ones, a lot of the church fathers and mothers, uh, Athanasius in particular, Augustine, uh, and I've spent most of my life studying more of the ancients in American history, Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather and Isaac Bacchus and all those, Timothy Dwight, those kinds of people who are connected with American higher education in the early years. And with some of those, are there some some ideas that really drive your thinking of God's kingdom? Like you just sort of, you, you take some of the ideas of some of these writers, maybe like an Edwards say, what what did you learn from Edwards that you find helpful for today? Well, Ed, I mean, Edwards is an amazing, uh, one-of-a-kind person almost in American history. I mean, he saved in a day when paper was the most valuable thing in his family budget. I mean, he he wrote over two and a half million words and, and he saved them all. So we have like over 1,200 sermons. I think there's 73 volumes in the Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards. Wow. So, wow. So, I mean, he's the most studied individual in colonial America. Uh, and yet so much of the study is not about really what was mostly his hardest work as a pastor and as someone doing spiritual formation in the lives of others, which shaped his uh, presidency at Princeton University, which really shaped all of Amer- early American higher education. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think in terms of understanding how we started as Christian universities, I mean, Gary, talk us through the process a little bit about early on, some of our most well-known Ivy League institutions started very much as minister kinds of schools for, for ministry, and yet they've really evolved over that time. And I would love your perspective on why you think we've we've started from Christian institutions at the university level and to where we find ourselves where it's such a sort of a bastion of liberalism and secularism at this point. No, that's a great question. Well, I mean, when the Puritans first came, uh, it was amazing. 16 years after they landed on Plymouth Rock, they founded Harvard University. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how important they thought higher education was. But they thought it was, I mean, they thought you only needed two things to build this great society, this city on a hill, this Christian community. And that was you needed educated ministers who could preach the word of God. And you needed the power of the Holy Spirit. You needed spiritual awakening, regularly working Uh, They didn't have the word spiritual formation, so they're talking about more seasons of God stepping in and moving powerfully in their midst. And then in the first great awakening, the faculty of Harvard and then Yale, who had been started because Harvard was too liberal, they both rejected uh, what God was doing in the spiritual awakening. And the entire everyone in America was like, "What what do we do now? We only have two colleges in the Northeast and we don't and they've rejected God. And so the answer was to start more colleges. So that's how Princeton got started. Uh, and 
Edwards was very influential in the lives of the people who founded it, and then he became their third president. And then because of all of his writings, even though he wasn't president for very long, uh, he shaped Princeton and then all the colleges that came and said, if you don't have both the life of the mind and the life of the spirit at work in your college, you're in serious trouble. Yeah, and boy, and that, and that leads then to the rippling impact of what we see today and so many of our universities around the country in terms of there really isn't just even sort of an apathy about God. There's actually a rejection of uh, through sort of secularism and humanism and atheism. Uh, and, and that happens through the generations, right, Gary? If we're not mindful of where we've come from, we forget so easily. We were talking to my class yesterday, and the students were talking about the Exodus journey and uh, Moses being born as the sort of fine child who's going to be there to deliver the people. And what we ended up talking about was the reason why Pharaoh was taking out the firstborn male children is they were the keepers of the tradition. They're the keepers of the story of the identity of the Israelites. And Pharaoh knew that if he could take them out and give it a couple generations, people will forget entirely who they are and, and what their identity actually is. And you sort of just get assimilated into culture. And we see a lot of that, don't we, Gary, in terms of if, if we're not mindful and keep the stories alive, of our past and just assume that whatever's happening now is the most important thing. We, we run that risk of becoming Egyptians without hardly even knowing it. No, it is amazing how often we are just not in touch with the lessons of the past, with how we came to arrive at why we believe the things we believe. Uh, and I mean, the sad thing is that after this great, what Mark Noel calls the great age of Christian education until 1890 ish, Virtually every school that started in America was started uh, as a Christian university. Even the state universities had chapel. I mean, it was and chaplains. And so it was the kind of the rise of this German research model version of things. And then kind of the triple kills of uh, when Marx and Darwin and well, Marx was later, but uh, Nietzsche, others started writing and thinking uh, the university kind of slung over in a direction where the where the we'd try to do the life of the mind, but now no longer with the life of the spirit, no longer with God as a reference point. And it's not been particularly good for our culture. <laughs> yeah, we're talking with Gary Stratton this morning. He's a university professor uh, at Johnson University on, cult, on spiritual formation, cultural engagement, and the topics of the day. And Gary, uh, at the break at the bottom half of this past hour, Paul was referencing a document called the Didache, which was some of the writings of the early church and how they practiced their yes. faith. and. I'm curious, I'd love to get into a little conversation about uh, baptism and some of the process there. But growing up for you, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different ways in which people have practiced baptism. And uh, sometimes we don't even know why or what the origin of that might be. But what was baptism for you growing up? Well, I came to faith uh, when my family was part of a, a Methodist church that had practiced infant baptism. So I'd been baptism as an, as an in, baptized as an infant. Uh, when I got more thoughtful about my own faith and started seeing how important adult baptism was, I actually got involved in an a independent Christian church that emphasized adult baptism and got baptized again, this time by immersion, uh, which just seemed—I understand the, the rationale for putting, wanting to baptize infants— so our children come in and part of the, be part of the covenant. But I wanted to make the decision as an adult, and so that's what happened for me. Yeah, and my understanding with infant baptism is it really the origin of these things. It was uh, right around Augustine in the 4th and 5th century where he, he sort of brought for the first time the idea of a total depravity of an original sin that needed to be washed away by the process of baptism. So, so infants weren't necessarily uh, baptized as part of the covenant community. It was to wash away that sin. And 
And Gary, I think about my own grandmother and, and for listeners who grew up in, in infant baptism kinds of traditions, she had 12 children, uh, and that was primarily because in central Minnesota, the, the theology of the day was that if you had 12 children, you could avoid purgatory and go straight to heaven. And so she had 12. Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh. And, and, and three of those children died either as stillborns or on the way home from the hospital, and they didn't get baptized. And, and so she had to bury uh, my aunts and uncles outside of the cemetery at that time uh-huh. because it was seen that their uh-huh. sin wasn't washed away. But in 1960, the Vatican II Council changed the language of baptism that had been there for 1,500 years, which is babies are now left into the hands and the grace of God as opposed to immediately going to hell. And, Gary, people immediately began to big, dig up their loved ones and rebury them in the cemeteries. And so this is just, it's a pretty stark example of how wow. we think about God wow. is so directly dependent upon some of the thinking of the past. Yeah, and especially when... <laughs> The thinking of the past can be really reliably wrong. One of the best, <laughs> well, one of the best things about studying history is is our view of life, if we are on it, is very two dimensional. Uh, we don't realize it until we kind of put on three D glasses, uh, like the movies. And you know, one of them is the we need the lens of of thinking cross culturally. Like to look at the church around the world and realize, wait a minute, <laughs> this, <laughs> well, I mean, these cherished little ideas I have probably aren't as important as I think they are, uh, or as biblical as I think they are, even though I've connected them to biblical verses. Uh, and with history does the same thing. You just read just a little while and realize, wow, you can, they see things very differently than I do. They probably understood scripture better than I do. And they also went off the rails in ways that now seem really obvious. That didn't seem obvious at the time. Well, and I think so often, like, what ways are we going off the rails today that seems so right to us in terms of our interpretation? How will history judge some of those things? So, Gary, great perspective here in the first segment. Let's take a short break and come back and dig in a little bit more about the role of the Bible in helping us understand our faith and specifically how we can engage with the text in the most reliable way as possible so perhaps we don't run off the rails. So stay with us if you're listening. This is Mornings with Carmen. It is about 10 minutes before the top of the hour here on the 31st of January. This is Mornings with Carmen, and I'm Peter Kapsner subbing for the day as Carmen is away on a holiday with, I think, 20 other relatives. So I can't uh, imagine. Or so, is it 18? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to get a little <laughs> FaceTime video of what's happening in that house right now. But Gary uh, Stratton joining us here this morning, a good friend of the program. And Gary, as you and I were chatting during the break, you, you had a great question, which was along the lines of what is the starkest lesson that you've learned from history, from some of the ancient uh, and even some you know more contemporary writers? So how would you answer that question? Well, I, gosh, I think maybe one positive and one negative from American history. I, I went did a uh, 10-day study fellowship at uh, Princeton University two summers ago. And on the way in getting ready for it, I read Charles Hambrick Stowe's book on the practice of piety, how pastors in colonial America were so deeply influenced by wanting to spend as much time with the Lord and prayer as they were in sermon preparation because they thought this life of the Spirit was so important. And the hero of that uh, story is Cotton Mather, who got all the pastors in America to spend at least one day a week shut on, shut in alone with the Lord or alone with their wife. He had his wife praying, and they were really big in seeking sin in their life. And uh, I thought, what a great practice. And then I picked up my next book, which is stamped from the beginning uh, on the history of, of really of white supremacism in American mm. history. And I opened it up in the first chapter. The hero is Cotton Mather. Wow. But he's not the hero. He's the villain. Like, And I'm reading things that Cotton Mather wrote 
that would make the KKK blush. Mm. I mean, and realizing here's somebody's asking the Lord every day, show me if there's anything in my heart and mind that's displeasing to you. And yet he's uh, perpetrating ideas and practices that are beyond an unchristian and anti-Christian. And it was just such a slap in the face of realizing it's really easy to have a good heart and yet miss miss what God's saying in his word and that history can really open up your eyes to that. Now, the positive of that would probably be Jonathan Edwards and others who were involved in the first great awakening. We have a tendency to think that everything's always going to be always the way it always is. And then uh, so if things are bad, they'll always be bad. Things are good. They'll always be good. And Edwards just reminds God can move so powerfully and so quickly in a culture if you'll just cooperate with him and mm. uh, speak the word of God with love and ask for God to bless it with power. And I mean, in 1740, one year alone, close to 20 percent of the population of the northern United States at least came to faith in a single year. And you just try to imagine what would happen in America if 20 if 20 percent of, of Americans came to faith in one year. Uh, and I think God can and has done that again in other times in history. So so it also gives me hope. So. Mm. And I think the reminder of that too, Gary, a little bit is as we are, I think, rightly wanting to pray for revival and for God to move in some of those places is that the lessons of history you just described in that way, um, there's a bit of humility that I think is required for people who are leading the way in God's kingdom and, and representing his kingdom. I know that from a teaching standpoint, for me, that uh, I've become, I think, a lot more sobered and humbled by the things that I obviously don't know or the fear that you just described that perhaps I'm representing the gospel in a way that I think is absolutely rightly ordered, but maybe missing the point altogether. And and uh, what are some processes you can put in place as we're learning that kind of lesson from history to say, hang on a minute, maybe the way I'm thinking about God and representing God, f- coming from a very good heart, as you described, but maybe I'm missing the point of what the beautiful kingdom is all about. Well, and yeah, I think what you said there is so profound, just the Every generation kind of develops their particular articulation of the gospel, and that articulation of the gospel is very focused on their particular culture to reach them. We're good mission, missiologists, contextualists, but then it always misses things yeah. and always or gets pushed into extremes in the future. So to read something like uh, Jonathan Edwards' faithful narrative um, or his life of David Brainerd, uh, which is more of a, a biography. As a matter of fact, I find reading biography in general with their when they're well-written – uh, is just, for me, just such a wake-up call consistently. Uh, so I, I think to some degree reading historical biography or or if you like historical theologies uh, with, with one hand and the Bible and the other, it just opens up vistas of understanding that you would just can't, you can't get any other way. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a sort of a sucker for some of the earliest church writings too in terms of anything that we have that's available from the first century in terms of how they practice the church and church life together. And baptism that I referenced before was one of those things, Gary. I know when I was forced to do some research on it, my, my eyes were really opened by how the early church practiced baptism, primarily that it was really about being ransomed from the kingdom of darkness. And, and the idea of the gospel was that there was a death, there was a slavery to sin, there was a, a power at work from which a person needed to be rescued. And the heart of the gospel uh, was that we were rescued from those things. And I, and I loved the idea on Easter Vigil on a Saturday night that they would take the 
they're called the catechumens or the initiates or those to be baptized. And they would spend all night renouncing the works of Satan and they would turn towards the West and, and stand and face that darkness. And they would renounce the works of Satan in their life. And when the sun would rise on Easter morning, then all of the catechumens would turn their faces towards the East and the rising of the sun and the greeting of the light of God's kingdom. And they would disrobe completely and head into the waters of baptism and, uh, and, and ask for, God to break that power of sin. And when they came out of the waters, Gary, they were confirmed not because they were given two years of instruction as 13-year-olds. They were confirmed by the anointing of oil on their head that the Spirit was now the act of control in their life and sin has been beaten. And I, and I think those kinds of things, I remember just being mesmerized by that and saying, oh my mm-hmm. word, the way I'm thinking about baptism and communion and confirmation needs to be informed by these sorts of things, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's very sobering to see how we've just subtly changed uh, our whole understanding of what Jesus did on the cross and turned a, a theory that was come up with in the, a thousand years ago, a thousand years after Jesus, and say, when, we, when most evangelicals preach the gospel, they give this in some theory that isn't even in Scripture. So, uh, yeah, it really opens up our eyes to see, wow, th- this is all so much deeper and more profound uh, and for us, like we, if we ever think about Satan, we think about over there in our enemies. Yeah. Where you know, whereas the early church is worried about the, the work of Satan in our own hearts, in our own church, uh, they were much more worried about being deceived there than they were about. They thought, oh, our God's more powerful than than God's enemies. That's no problem. But what about our being deceived? So yeah, yeah. No, it's well said, Gary. We're gonna leave it right there. We're just out of time for the morning, but great stuff. Appreciate the perspective and just the work that you do. And it's always fun to talk with you. So have a great weekend here ahead, and look forward to catching up soon. All right. Thanks so much, Peter. We'll take a short break here and wrap up the first hour of the show and preview what's coming up on Hour 2 here on Mornings of Carmen for the 31st of January. Boy, I could talk with Gary Stratton all morning long. I'm just always amazed by how well-read he is, how humble he is, and and, uh, just representative of the kingdom. I hope it's encouraging and inspiring to you as well. I know sometimes when I feel stuck in God's kingdom and I don't really know the way forward or I wonder if the whole thing is true, when there's somebody like a Gary or other people in our lives that maybe just see it through sort of a different lens that can bring some of that hope again and then keep saying yes to the journey. So I appreciate the first hour of the show here this morning. We'll start with Adam Holtz at the top of the next hour from PluggedIn.com. Talk about some of the movies of the day. And I'm really curious, uh, PluggedIn.com has given some movie awards for the best Christian nominees. And I'll ask Adam about that next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.